Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Gozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Oh, I don't know. I can't seem to remember much. It might be all the laudanum. It could be the laudanum or it could be time travel. It's very difficult to tell with memory failures like that. But as if that wasn't a big enough clue, of course, that means this week we are covering Catch 1782. So we are back with Mel and the Sixth Doctor in a tale of time travel shenanigans, temporal thermos flasks and a mad bush in the attic next to a roof garden with David Warner for some reason. Sure, let's go with that. Kev, I know you weren't looking forward to this one, but do you want to give us a, a quick summary of it? And uh, what did you think second time around? Trying to hold back my bias in this description, but basically uh, the Doctor and Mel show up to meet Mel's uncle at a scientific convention. Mel gets thrown back in time and winds up becoming a figure in her family's past. The Doctor shows up and takes her back to the present. <laughs> there is a bit of drama on sort of extracting her without... Uh, upsetting the people around her too much but it is a very straightforward story indeed yeah it is and although well okay i have to give my bias here as well i i think it is a very straightforward story but i find it kind of low-key charming in a way i'm i'm never going to sort of defend this one as a great lost classic of the big finish range but i think it is a few things to recommend it in, in places I, I i think we can gather from your description that you're rather less positive in this one I definitely don't hate this the same way you hated the game last week, but it's very much just such a nothing for me. I mean, I can see what it's going for, trying to give some of that Bronte-esque a gothic flair to Doctor Who is a fun idea. And like, I appreciate almost the ambition in having sort of lower stakes and no sort of villain or anything, but it just makes for a very dull story for me. And this is... It was very hard for me to motivate myself to listen to episode three of this, especially just because it's such a low point in the story where it's a lot of exposition and then a lot of resolution is very pat and it feels like we've just lost a lot of time debating about nothing, which is, it's a bit very hard to overcome that. No, I mean, I don't think that's an unfair description of it. I, I, as I say, my, my defense of this, such as it's going to be, is, is not going to be based on the idea that there's some, you know, great thing going on here. I, I don't think there is. I think mostly this play exists to give Bonnie Langford the opportunity to kind of stretch her wings a little bit. And I, I kind of like her in this. I think it's also one of those things where we slightly are, how can I say this? We're, we're maybe rendered a little unfortunate from the fact that we record these every week. And that means that it's not that long since we've just covered the Juggernauts, which covers fairly similar territory as well. Mel being separated from the Doctor from an ex for an extended period of time and sort of having to find her own, her own way. Now, in the Juggernauts, obviously, she had a lot more agency and she had a lot more going on, whereas here she's essentially imprisoned against her will. But, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly swimming in the same pool, let's say. But, but for all that, it's nice... Uh, to hear Bonnie Lang forget the opportunity to to have these plays that, that do more with the character and give her somewhere to go. And, and you know, I, I think she does well with the material she's given here. And if it's not the most dramatic play in the world, it's, it's definitely not. Low, low stakes is, is sort of, even that feels a little bit generous in a way, I suppose. But um, yeah, it, I, I just I just really enjoy listening her to her performance here, even although I'm I'm aware that I'm listening to it in in what is a very slight piece. Yeah, I sort of regret uh, not sort of picking it up, uh, sort of scheduling the episodes that we're doing this and the Juggernaut so close together, which is one of the very few Sixth Doctor Mel stories in the Big Finish range. But 
Yeah, it really suffers in comparison to the Juggernauts, I think. Not for Langford's performance. She's just as great here doing what she's been given. But for Mel as a character, the Juggernauts gives her so much range and depth and really like explored her for sort of those nooks and crannies. And while on the surface catch 1782 does give a lot of like history for Mel and backstory, as far as character goes, she's still sort of victimized in a way that sort of sidelines her. And while not sidelines her, I guess, in sort of, you could call it screen time, and Bonnie Langford uses that well, but Mel's lack of agency in this really does make it a much less effective showing for the character than the Juggernauts. And yeah, it's, having those two in such close comparison really does, I think, hurt the story a bit unfairly. That's true. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that of these two stories, the Juggernaut is definitely the best one. But for all that you're right, that, um, that sort of Mel's sort of being pushed to the margins a little bit in the story and the fact that she's essentially kept doped up in laudanum and, and she has sort of, you know, her control and her memory taken away from her. It does mean that we get to spend at least a little bit of the time that we have in this play sort of dealing with a side of her character that wasn't explored in the juggernaut so we get to see how she reacts in the circumstances in terms of the way that she reacts to the laudanum um, how she reacts when she's sort of very confused and disoriented how she tries to make most of a situation that she clearly doesn't comprehend i mean one of the things that um is true in the juggernauts is that for all that she's separated from the doctor she perfectly understands what's going on around her you know they've been separated she's an alien planet she has to survive and she does what she can to kind of make her own way in in, in the base there here she doesn't have any of that and it's it's not until sort of fairly late in the play that she even sort of really gets a handle on the idea that she's sort of back 200 years in time and she has no way of contacting the doctor that's sort of right at the end of episode two i think it is and um there's just that sense that uh we get to see that slightly more not extreme side of mel exactly but we just get to see her react to a situation in a way that at least isn't just a carbon copy of what she's doing in the juggernauts yeah you're right that does uh give mel a little bit more range just to sort of mix it up what she's dealing with but it really does just sort of feel you know i mean unfortunate because like she doesn't get to do much she is stranded in that house and then is doped up and then she doesn't really have any agency for escaping us the doctor and john just sort of break her out and so we really are just seeing sort of mel as a very passive uh actor in this story just really having plot happen to her and Though it gives Langford some good material, it doesn't do... I guess, just sort of back to my argument, I guess, it just really doesn't do so much wonders for the character. No, I think that's perfectly valid criticism. I, I, I don't disagree with it. But as I said, I just I kind of enjoy listening to, to, to Langford giving her, her performance here. And yeah, it, it's, it's low-key and it's small stakes and, and all the rest of it. And, and it does that occasionally does overwhelm me, I have to say. There are particular moments, especially right at the end, when they get back to the 21st century... You know, she's just like, oh, well, so we just left the reception. So off we go and let's get some champagne. But she's meant to have been through like this six month trauma of, of being doped up and separated and lost in time. And, you know, she's, she's trotting off back. And well, it's nice to have sort of perky Mel reappear at the end of the play. But it's it, it, it doesn't the play doesn't work to earn that. It, you know, there sh it should have ended on something more. um not low key, but a little bit more something which gave melancholy. Weight. Yeah, exactly. Melancholy is a good word for it. Something that gives weight to her experience in the past, and 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 sort of bouncing off to a party in the hopes of getting some champagne is is not really 
the right <laughs> the right ending for it so yeah that that lightness does it, it does sometimes tip over into into just being silly yeah, that is, I think, another major problem I have with this play, is that it is, it doesn't really seem to be fully aware of the stakes it's dealing with. Like, this idea of uh, sort of this maltreatment of the mentally ill and the maltreatment of sort of women in this time period are things it very, it skirts against, and it flirts with this idea of uh, very horrible things were happening to people in this time. And then it doesn't quite sort of tee that up and knock it out. In the same way, say, the recent TV episode, Rosa, was sort of all about the racism of the past, and I've had quibbles without that, but that was still very focused on this is a social problem we're trying to address. This brings up those sort of similar negative sort of this is how things in the past were bad ideas, but doesn't really care to sort of address them or point them out as wrong. It's just more of an obstacle for the doctor to sort of run up against. And I think you do need a little bit more weight when you sort of bring those things in. I think especially disturbing and almost not worth bringing up much more beyond noting it is when uh, Mel insinuates that Henry might have raped her when she was under the drugs. And that is such a weird thing to throw away and then never, and he doesn't deny it. And then it's never brought up again. And like, again, it's such a throw in the story. I don't want to talk about it much. I think it'd be kind of icky to talk about it too much detail, but at the same time, it, you can't just be, it sort of speaks to how cavalier the story is treating very traumatic and serious things. Yeah, you're right. That is a very odd sort of tone to hit. And, and I mean, the fact it's never confirmed or denies, mean, denied means you can kind of, I don't want to say dismiss it, but you can think, well, you know, it's, it's at least slightly open to interpretation. It's, it's certainly not guaranteed that, that, that that's what happened. Um, I want to push back slightly against one of the things that you said, though. You mentioned that this is about, you know, kind of um, terrible things happening in the past and, and the way that somebody is being abused or whatever and, and sort of, you know, treated. But I think the play makes at least some concession to the idea that the way that we look at how things are in the past through sort of contemporary eyes is is not always the right way to look at it when the doctor has um his initial introduction to dr wallace they have that um initial meeting where the doctor says oh yes well you know i i might have a treatment for for mel and and dr wallace says oh what's your speciality and the doctor starts to reel off all these sort of um uh, conditions of the mind that he's an expert in so he mentions psychology and and all this kind of stuff and and dr wallace's responses to that was well i i don't recognize all of these words but you've clearly got some idea of what you're talking about and i think that kind of plays into this idea that that the way that mel is being treated and by being treated i mean medically treated let's so with the laudanum and the drafts and all that kind of thing it's not that she's necessarily being abused, but that's kind of the limits of 17th century medicine. That's as far, sorry, 18th century medicine, I should say. That's as far as they're capable of treating her. And they simply don't have the, the sort of facilities or the ability to do much more for her other than slinging, slinging her in an asylum. And it's made very clear that that is a vastly unpalatable option. So even if being doped up in laudanum isn't exactly anybody's idea of a perfect solution, it seems to be much better than sort of being institutionalized in the 18th century. And so I think the play does kind of try and contextualize, at least from a medical point of view, 
the way that Mel is treated now. The treatment of her um, by John Hallam, that's a separate issue, and, and we'll kind of get into that, I think. But I, I think the play deserves at least a little bit of credit for, for treating the medical side as something that we, we shouldn't overemphasize from our contemporary perspective. That is a good point. And I think you're hitting on something that the story is really, I think, being bold and almost trying, in that there's no unsympathetic characters in it. Uh, Doc, Henry Hallam, I should say, and uh, Dr. Wallace are have their flaws for sure, especially Henry. But the story also comes at them from a very sympathetic angle. I mean, even when Henry has gone full mental breakdown monstrous at the end, like the story is very clearly sort of, well, God, it's a real shame that he's having this mental breakdown. It's awful for him. And it's sort of on his side. And I don't I think that's like a bad... I think that's a good idea. I think it's a really interesting tack to take the story in and just have these people sort of coming up at the limits of what they know and how society sort of shaped them to behave and then acting on that. And also the limits of their own sort of character and sort of mental faculties at the time. And so it really is... No one is directly at fault. Instead, it's above sort of indirectness at fault just not knowing really how to handle the situation. And I think that is a really compelling idea, like a really ambitious idea, that in practice, maybe you should have an actual villain in your story from my point of view, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it probably speaks to the inexperience of Alison Lawson. This is her first and last big finish uh, full-length story. And I think that may just simply be one of those things that, yeah, you know, if there had been more stories from her, then maybe there would be more, you know, she would be able to develop that skill, you know, further down the line, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, I suppose, we never really get, an, well, we don't get any more full-length ones. She, she, she's written a couple of uh, short short trips, but, um, you know, we never get another full play from her. Um, and as far as John Hallam is concerned, yeah, um, you're right. He's one of those characters that even when he goes full monstrous, it's made very clear that it is, you know, he, he's, he's basically having a mental breakdown. He's having, an, a, you know, an, a, a nervous breakdown and he's suffering from, I guess we would call it sort of post-traumatic stress or whatever, or just grief from, from the death of his wife. And since he has no mechanism or, or ability to cope or even articulate what it is he's going through, it comes out in this sort of corrupt way and the way that he kind of wants to force himself on, on Mel. And I quite like the fact that all three of the sort of um, 18th century characters have slightly unexpected kind of emotional arcs. That, that's a, that's maybe overstating it a little bit, but no, you know, no, I agree. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Hallam gets to go from this apparently very compassionate, sympathetic person to to kind of a monster, but one that we can still at least understand or or relate to because we understand what it is that's driving him. Um, Doctor Wallace initially seems like he's just a quack. Um, you know, an 18th century doctor that just has no idea what he's doing, but he eventually turns out to be a key ally. And, and sort of Mrs. McGregor seems like she's going to be such a stereotypical kind of, you know, jealous housewife and, and, and you know, bitter and, and defensive. But actually, she turns out to be a kind and compassionate individual after all. And I, I like the fact that at least those three characters all have, like, proper journeys throughout the play. They're not what they first appear, and, and they, that helps to give them a little bit more depth. I'm not going to tell you that they're the most detailed or highly sketched characters in Big Finish history. Of course they're not. But I still appreciate that there's an effort to sort of subvert the obvious kind of, you know, 18th century gothic kind of tropes of these characters. I completely agree. That's probably the strongest part of the play for me, is how these characters sort of 
like reveal themselves to be different than what they appear. And it's never through what feels like cheating or surprise or hiding what they are. It's just getting different perspectives on them and sort of changing uh, Wallace's and McGregor's and uh, Henry's point of view makes them seem in two cases better and one case worse than they actually, than they appear to be at first. And yeah, I think that is a really interesting thing about the story. Sort of tying back to what I said earlier about how it's about people from the past sort of hitting the limits of their knowledge and sort of hitting the limits of what society has shaped them to be and sort of realizing they've hit a limit like that. Like, especially with Wallace sort of realizing he should have been listening to Mel because she was telling the truth and that sort of turns him around. I think it's a great character arc in sort of making this small difference in the past and sort of addressing that, yeah, he did this terrible thing to her, but he was just following what he knew was right. And that that is like a really sort of fascinating take. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think it's one of those things that does help to kind of, I mean, again, this is low stakes. I mean, often the Doctor has to battle against monsters and save whole planets. And here the sort of the worst thing he has to come up against is a, is a you know, slightly annoyed uh, widower and, and a locked door. So there's only a limited amount of drama that you can get from that. But, but at least with those kind of character depths, it, it does help to, to give a little bit of dimension to the play. Unfortunately, there is one major guest character that that is difficult to say anything about. And, and I'm afraid it's... Um, um, yeah, as as um, Mel's uncle, uh, it's not really clear to me um, how much... It's, I feel ashamed for that character, really, because it just turns up and is very accepting of things. And, like, this is, uh, you know, it's like the, it's the other big major character, and particularly the one from the uh, 21st century. Um, and, and he just sort of blithely goes along with everything. And, and like, the TARDIS is easily accepted, and time travel is easily accepted. And, and he never, I don't think he even has to run at any stage. It's just, it's such an unflustered character. But there there's no... There's no arc there. There's no revelation there. There's no real development. It's a weird sort of character, and it's the one sort of major guest character that doesn't really kind of benefit from anything. Does, do, would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. It's He's really there to be the companion to the Doctor while his companion isn't there, and that is his only purpose in the story. I guess it also helps give Mel some sort of stakes and end of sort of the family history part of the story. But, yeah, Derek Benfield is feels completely wasted here he doesn't get much to do acting wise and he really is just sort of bumming around and moving the story along in a very mechanical way which is sort of you know unfortunate yeah it, it is it just it doesn't really go anywhere and i mean i don't even know if, do you think there's that much of a a sense of uh, like any kind of existing relationship between between that character and mel because i don't think that there is and it's not that either actor are, are, are doing sort of bad work or whatever thing. And I think I think Bonnie Langford in particular is, is working quite hard to make it seem like there's a sort of familial connection there. But it just doesn't really quite come together. I mean, the fact that they spend so little kind of time together, you know, before she's abducted, and then very little at the end of episode four when they kind of finally get to reunite. There isn't a lot of time to kind of build that family relationship, I suppose. But but even given that, they, they don't really feel like they're, they're two characters that have ever spent any sort of time together, never mind get to spend any in this play. Their relationship is a very basic familial one. They love each other, they care for each other, but... Yeah, there's no depth to it. There is no sort of 
uh, complexity to how they interact. It's just he wants to make sure she's safe and she likes spending time with him in a very non-specific way. <laughs> and that is, you know, it's just fine. Like, we don't have much to go on from that. And so, right, there's not much emotion to them reuniting and being together at the end. No, if, if I want to have an exposition historian, I think I'll probably go for Evelyn. I think that would be my preferred choice. Actually, you know, Evelyn wouldn't be a bad fit for this story either. And, and it might make sense for the kind of that historicals i don't know if we do we ever establish sorry this is slightly off piece but anyway do we ever establish what period of history evelyn's an expert in because i keep remembering in the marion conspiracy she says that's not her period and then in medicinal purposes that's not her period either and i can't remember if we ever find out when it is that she's meant to be an expert in the back of my mind says elizabethan okay okay i don't know how much to trust that (laughs) (laughs) that's a it's as good a guess as anyway anyway that's that's absolutely nothing to do this way i do apologize for my small divergence um yeah so um i guess that's the characters kind of covered but uh, the 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 sci-fi plotting here i think is also one of the elements that if you're gonna if one was to pick a hole in this play that's a fair one to go for because it's weak it's just and the thing is they spend a lot of time in the kind of like the second half of the first episode and a lot of the second episode going on about this mysterious new metal that's been developed and it's been dug up and then it's been buried again and now it's in a chest and it's been in the ground for 250 years and blah 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 blah. on and on it goes and i don't think that there's a great sense of necessity out of it like normally it's perfectly fine for the doctor to turn up there's a temporal anomaly it throws a companion back in time and then you've got like all four episodes to sort of explore the consequences of that but for some reason there's this necessity to have like an episode and a half basically sort of waiting for the plot to really sort of kick in and get started i know mel's thrown back at the end of episode one but it still takes a long time for all that kind of exposition in episode two and then we get jupiter the cat because you know apparently that's the thing this play felt the need to add for some reason um and you know it's all light none of it's really i don't want to say it really gets in the way of the play but that's also slightly because there's not that much to get in the way of you also have these two completely useless characters of the Professor David Monroe and his assistant Rachel oh, yeah. who take up a lot of the first episode and then never show up again. Yeah, why are they in this? And it's very confusing. <laughs> and they also, even more confusing, that they have separate actors they pay for the whole story to have and they don't double them up with anyone else, which something Big Finish usually does. Maybe that's more of a later Big Finish thing. But yeah, it's very strange. And I don't know, I feel like a stronger version of the story would sort of mold sort of a future Big Finish model of doing two or even, if you really compressed it, a one-episode story where you just get to the story faster. But here, there's so much extra spent on those characters, extra stuff spent on the cat. And then once you get to 1782, and once the Doctor arrives at the midpoint of the story, finally, uh, it's still a lot of slow and gentle pacing and I can't really think of anything that's necessarily padding. It's just the very, very relaxed pace of the story. And I don't that is charming in that it's sort of different, but like I said, it's not exactly compelling. No, that's absolutely a fair comment. And I think one of the things with it is that with that kind of very languorous pace, you don't have the opportunity to have the big reveals land all that hard. So the fact that Mel has been thrown back in time is kind of you know it's not really some i mean i know it's kind of a cliffhanger but it still not doesn't really carry that big an impact and the idea that she's been stuck there 
for sort of six months after the doctor and and the professor have been sort of thrown back uh, uh you know to try and follow her is completely ruined because she every time mel asks what the date is she's told it's 1781 it's 1781 you've arrived in 70, 1781 you did you know it was 1781 it's definitely 1781 the place called seven catch 1782 so i mean it's not exactly a three-pipe problem to work out what the what the big twist is going to be you know it, it kind of self-explains itself and so there is no way for that kind of six-month gap to kind of land with any impact as well the play sort of immediately undermines itself in its own title and that's terribly unfortunate and also, that six-month gap happens in the middle of episode three. Uh, it's uh, it's very casually revealed in the beginning when the doc when John sort of gets it from McGregor. But I think first there's an allusion to summer. It's like very casually tossed off. I think maybe even in the first scene of episode three. And so I, I can't exactly remember what headspace I was at first listening to the story. But like I do remember that Mel gets separated for a long period of time coming back to the re-listen. But I can't imagine it having a great effect on the first listen when you end episode two with Mel in like around Christmas time, 1781, being sedated, and that's the episode two cliffhanger. And then episode three, it's like, oh, well, now it's six months later. And six months later, <laughs> it feels like it should be, a, like I said, a harder landing twist than the way it's just sort of dripped out in the natural course of the story. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And and all the the stuff with the capsule is just doesn't add up to anything at all. Especially like the way that we, you know, it's, it has to be reburied so that they avoid a paradox, so that it does. I don't even think the word paradox is used, which is a weird for a, a kind of time travel play like this. Like especially when the Doctor has this big sort of statement where he explains, oh, you know, Mel has to stay in, in 1782 so that the family history remains unaltered. And, you know, that's like, oh, that should be another big kind of punchy moment. But we, we, we know it's not a big punchy moment because, um, firstly, I think Mrs. McGregor is well set up for the idea that she can sort of easily step across into this kind of role. And also, like, it's Mel. She's not going to be stuck here for the rest of her life so that she can sort of act out a role to, to sort of keep the web of time or to keep history sort of in its place. It's another one of those kind of revelations that doesn't quite land. And I, again, you know, I've mentioned this in the past. It doesn't necessarily need to be how, uh, whether she gets out of it. It needs to be how she gets out of it. But there isn't any real sort of urgency to that either. And so it doesn't kind of work in either way. It doesn't work as a how and it doesn't work as a why. Yeah, the capsule thing is so mysterious, and it's given just the barest explanation, which is... I, I just think the story could have used something a lot stronger to sort of kick off its story, yeah. instead of just a very clear deus ex machina, which is then just sort of a very minor problem for the Doctor to fix. And I think that really gets into... The one thing in the play that does make me a bit angry is that all the problems are so easily fixed. The doctor just has to stroll back into the house and get the canister after being thrown out. That's a big cliffhanger episode three. The doctor is thrown out, can't get back in, and then also realizes, wait, Mel might have to stay in there anyways because of history. Episode four is the doctor strolling in the house, grabbing the canister, strolling back out, and then taking Mel anyways because, oh, what I said at the end of episode three, well, who cares? Let's just go home. And that is... It feels insulting to base your entire drama around something and then not have any drama come from it. It just, to raise the stakes to a level 
and then lower them back down again, almost like you were like playing with me. It just feels bizarre and like kind of uh, infuriating. Oh no, that's a perfectly valid criticism. And yeah, that episode four or episode three going into episode four uh, cliffhanger is is really weak because it feels like the emphasis is in the wrong place. The emphasis is in the doctor getting thrown out. And then also, by the way, Mel might have to stay here forever. Whereas it should be the doctor gets thrown out and then he suddenly realizes, oh my God, Mel might have to... But no, it's completely the wrong way around. The emphasis is wrong. And I have to say, I think I, I put that a little bit down to the production as well. I think, um, or maybe I should say the direction, that's maybe fairer. Because I think um, I think it would have taken a, a very little thing for a director to say, no, wait. I mean, it doesn't even require like, a change of lines or whatever. It's just like... No, the emphasis needs to be on on one and not the other. So that feels like a weakness of the direction to the uh, to me, and and that's unusual again, as uh, as so very many of these plays are. This is directed by Gary Russell, so it's not like he's somebody that's unfamiliar. Everybody can have an off day, of course they can, but um, it just yeah, it feels like that was that was sort of poorly directed, and and it definitely sort of has a negative impact on on that sort of episode three cliffhanger. I think even if the emphasis is right, though, you still have an episode four, which resolves every problem either by uh, just bar- barreling through and doing what they want to do anyways, or just by not caring about the problem. It, re- it creates problems that then doesn't even bother trying to solve, and instead things just work out, which is very strange way to tell a story oh yeah i mean the, the, you, yeah you're right the, the the resolution feels like it takes absolutely no effort on anybody's part at all and and to be honest that the sort of thing i said earlier about you know the, the worst thing the doctor has to come up against here is a locked door i mean i was being flippant but it's also kind of true like if somebody had just like shoved um john hallam out the way and just said oh bugger off for god's sake unlock the door and walk mel out we could have saved like an episode and a half it's not like he's providing some big existential threat. He's certainly not providing any kind of physical threat. And, you know, like it's nice. They want to do it in the right way that's going to help somebody who's obviously sort of traumatized and, and it allows sort of Mrs. McGregor to sort of step forward and, and sort of take her place as well. And that's all, it's all nice. But, I mean, it's not it's not a dramatic conclusion to your sort of play. And like this isn't a long play. This is, I think, an hour and 45 minutes or something like that. So, you know, it clips a lot. Well, no, it doesn't clip a lot. That's a, complete, that's a complete lie but it sort of trundles along sort of merrily enough and and it doesn't you know i don't at least to me I, I don't think it felt like it was overly long but yeah that that the, the fact that there's no real drama and everything just sort of self-resolves in episode four i mean yeah you're you're quite right that's a big weakness here yeah, i just want to point out you mean it was henry Hallam they have to shove out of the way oh yeah sorry sorry but i completely agree yes he he is uh I think Keith Drinkle does a, or how play I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> is does a good job giving the character enough menace, at least trying to give him some menace. So he is like, it does give the playlist a little bit of juice because if he wasn't any sort of threat at all, this would just completely collapse. But he does have, it does feel like he's genuine in that he wants to keep Mel trapped there forever even though he's a very easily overcome uh, foe, it's still good that he's not a complete pushover and that uh, Drinkle does give him this uh, very very gothic, very sort of Heathcliff-ian performance. I mean, the Weathering Heights character, to be specific, there is not the cat. <laughs> but he, yeah, it's it does work, I think, on 
a level. Or is this trying to go for a level that could work really well? And it's just, there's just sort of a missing thing, a missing sort of key to it that really makes it have any sort of like tension or drive to it, which is, and it's very fresh and I can't like put my finger on what it could be fixed with, but I guess that's why I'm not a writer. I think one of the moments which lands well is there's the conversation between Dr. Wallace and, and Henry Hallam, and I think uh, Michael Chance as Dr. Wallace, she's perfectly fine, and um, Keith Drinko um, do a good job of kind of articulating this, and it's the first time that we're clued in that, that uh, Henry has a bit of a problem, is that it's the first time Henry uh, sort of announces his intentions to uh, Dr. Wallace, and he says, um, I'll marry her meaning Mel, and, and Dr. Wallace says, I don't think that's what it is she wants. And and he, without pausing for breath or without a beat, he just says, well, what difference does that make? And it's the it's a really nice beat because it's not emphasized. He just says it and the conversation moves on. And a, a lot of players would have felt the need to have like a big dun, dun, dun kind of moment when he said, yes, well, what difference does her opinion make? But he doesn't. He just said, well, that doesn't matter. I, I, I intend to wet her and that's the end of the story. And then the kind of conversation goes on. And that's a nice moment that's landed because that's really the moment that we start to understand that, that Henry isn't just this kind of nice guy that we've kind of been led to believe. He isn't just compassionate, but there's something much more sinister going on around, uh, you know, sorry, under the surface. And I think the play could have done with a lot more moments like that because when it does those odd moments, I think it's very effective. There's just not enough of them. You're right. I mean, that goes into what we were saying earlier about how each of these sort of three principal 18th century characters have a sort of turn in the story and reveals sort of these hidden depths. And yet Henry's, it is a very effective turn for him when you sort of realize that his niceness is in the context of both living in 1782 and having this massive grief for his wife. And both of those things sort of peek out from the surface and sort of chip away the sort of exterior slowly as you realize, yet men in 1782 had these sort of expectations, especially if they were grieving with loss and going mad with that sort of uh, insanity. And those two things sort of combine together to make it... So you have this sort of... It's a very soft realization. And again, I think it's not typical, and so that means I'm inclined to sort of give it credit. But you're right. At the same time, you sort of despair the idea of a dun-dun-dun. The story could have used a dun-dun-dun somewhere, though. <laughs> That's sort of the other problem sort of wrestling yeah, with, absolutely. is that it's going something very different in that it's a story with no with such low energy but that doesn't make it a good story just because it is different yeah no 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 you're completely correct i think one of the other things that i like about um the way that henry hallam's character is sort of handled is i like the it's this is landed far too softly and i think the play could have dealt with sort of putting a much sort of stronger emphasis on this but i like the idea that one of the reasons that he's having difficulty dealing with kind of the trauma of the death of his wife is because he's very isolated certainly i think the implication is is that hallam hall is sort of like a stately home or you know some kind of grand manor house at the very least with large guard we certainly know it has large gardens because the doctor sort of wanders around them repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly but there's just that sense that this is a big house which is isolated there, he, uh, there's reference made to a village so 
there's obviously not that many people around them um, and and henry is sort of chosen to isolate himself he's very dependent on mrs mcgregor he doesn't see dr wallace all that often it's made clear that he only comes around every sort of few months or whatever and that sense of isolation and loneliness that uh, henry suffers from is one of the things that's sort of fueling his kind of deep uh, trauma and and which is it's making it so hard for him to sort of recover from from the death of his wife and so of course when Mel turns up, that's something he latches onto because it gives him a break. It's a, it's a crack in that kind of isolation and he fixates on it. Um, and I think that's a really, again, I think there's a really compelling idea in that. And the idea that, you know, right at the end of the play, Dr. Wallace says he'll do his best by Henry and he'll try and help him to sort of recover from the trauma alongside uh, Mrs. McGregor. And the idea that by accepting sort of companionship or, or community around him, he can help, the he, he can start the healing process. He can he can start to get over this, this, you know, appalling thing that's happened in his life. And I think the play should have put much more emphasis on that. If we hadn't all that messing around in the bloody cocktail party in episode one, there might have been space for that. But we do have the cocktail party in episode one, so we don't. And that's a shame. But I still think that, that the kernel of that idea is buried in the play somewhere and and I would love to have seen that drawn out much more. That's very true and I do think it's a nice ending though to sort of have Mel sort of tie the bow, again very rushed and we could use more time with it, but sort of tie the bow of having Mrs. McGregor be the Sarah's second wife of Henry and so that's a hint that oh he will get better eventually in time yeah. and do right by her and I think this is a very sort of sweet ending to sort of come to the future again and sort of see history has already been set right and already has been right done right by these characters yeah it's it just is very rushed (laughs) like the ending of this play is and you're right a little less cocktail party would have given us the space to actually see these characters through rather than like i think it's something like two or three minutes of oh we're back oh things resolved oh let's go to the party yeah Absolutely. I do have one question for you. Maybe you can remember this better than I can. You, you almost certainly have a better memory than I do. Um, but this play is set, uh, at least the contemporary part of it, is set in 2003, which sort of, because, I mean, Mel is, she's an 80s gal. That's that's our Mel. Um, and so are we meant to read this now that she's been traveling with the doctor for like a really extended period of time, like, like 10 or 20 years or is that just when the party was? Or I, it was one of the, I don't know why, maybe because nothing much else happens at this play, but it was one of those things that just stuck in my mind for some reason. It felt odd that the cocktail party was set in 2003 rather than like 1986 or something. It, it struck me as very curious. Yeah, so we definitely know Mel shouldn't have been traveling that long because she leaves with the seventh doctor looking by Langford does not look two decades older. Well, that's true. Yeah. So she must have been from, she must have not been traveling that long. At least in noticeable so she would noticeably age. I guess that's sort of the restriction you have with any sort of big Finnish companions is you could have things like in this episode or upcoming The Kingmaker where people get stranded from the Doctor extended periods of time but you can't draw that out right, too long because Nicola Bryant and Bonnie Langford and uh, at all don't look different when they leave. I guess with the Sarah Sutton, it's a bit different being an alien and all, and Sophie Aldred, since we never see it on a screen, you can do whatever with her, but with all these other companions, you've got to sort of keep a limit in mind with how much you can sort of stretch their timeline. As far as for where Mel comes from, I'm 
I did a little bit of research because I had the same question, and the best I can determine, uh, there was a BBC past Doctor Adventures novel that said she came from the 80s, around this time, that this isn't canonically beholden to that. There was a big finished play years later which said she came from the 80s, though obviously it hadn't been written yet. So my best guess is, and given that there was no, given the whole trial of the time of the weirdness, there's no canonical male origin on TV, she could have been from 2003, and maybe that's what Allison Lawson was thinking when she wrote it. Or maybe she just thought it was too much pain to have John remark on, wow, Mel, you'd look the same. <laughs> and, I mean, I agree. I mean, we don't need to deal with that. But, yeah, it does raise questions. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why it was one of those things I fixated us. I just set this in 1986, and then you solve all your problems. But by setting it in 2003... Yeah, why Why doesn't her uncle say, yeah, wow, you look young for somebody that hasn't changed in 20 years or whenever I last saw you, which is also a bit vague. We're not quite sure when we last saw you, and presumably you've been traveling for a long time, but yeah, you haven't changed. So I don't know. It was just it was just weird, but it, it was a very minor thing in this play. And, you know, as, as I guess we're sort of moving towards a conclusion a little bit now, but it's, I don't know. There are so many flaws in this, but so many of the flaws feel like like first time writer flaws you know uh, you know robert holmes didn't start off writing the caves of androzani he started off writing the pirates uh, space pirates so um yeah you know everybody has to start somewhere and i i don't know that alison lawson is necessarily a great loss to big finish but i don't think she stank up the joint either so yeah i i i i'm only sort of really going to reiterate what i said at the start of this i think it's kind of low-key charming but it's 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 nothing to write home about for sure, I would have liked to see Alison Lawson get another chance. I think in this period of Big Finish, we're seeing a lot of writers get like one or two cracks at the bat and then shoved out the door, which is unfortunate. Part of that might have to do with the fact that there's going to be a regime change uh, coming up in, I don't know, a year or two from now. I actually can't remember the exact timeline. But yeah, especially given Big Finish is struggling these days to get more fresh blood in sort of its veins, especially fresh blood that isn't white men, uh, we could have used, I think, Alison Lawson around a little longer. And I think what she does in Catch-1782 is really ambitious, like the writer of Axis of Insanity and a lot of other stories we've talked about recently. These are stories that took these sort of big swings, and big swings is what you want from Big Finish Doctor Who. It's what you want from Doctor Who in general. You don't want it repeating the same stories Doctor Who has already done. And even if I wasn't very compelled or interested in this story, I think there's enough of a kernel here of someone with a genuinely different take on Doctor Who that I'd love to see what she could do with like a little bit more polish and more refinement to what she's writing. Well, that sounds like a very good summary to me. And I think probably, therefore, we can leave it there for Catch 1782. Uh, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure. We have no letters this week, but you can please send them to TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KevKoser. That is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. Uh, I plugged this last week. I'm going to plug it again. I am on the sort of behind-the-scenes crew of a web series called The Choice is Yours. My good friend Jordan Embry is writing, directing, and starring in it, and it would mean a lot if you were to help us out by just just watching it and then giving a comment feedback on what the next episode should be about. This is a choose-your-own-adventure series. And then, yeah, I'd really hope to do more of that. And 
That's very fun. Oh, I'm also on another podcast called Mon Men, which is basically talking about Pokemon. It was a very fun thing to do. The episode should be dropping. I think it would have already dropped maybe a few days ago or a week and a few days ago at the time of listening to this. But check it out. It would be episode six. And yeah, that's uh, enough plugs from me. You can also find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Fantastic. And of course, as always, please like, rate and review us. And please give us those iTunes reviews. I know we always ask for iTunes reviews, but it's because the more people review it, the further up the list we go and the easier it makes people uh, to find us. It's just one of those sort of Apple algorithm things where it really makes a big difference to us. If you can take just a couple of minutes, give us a few stars and, and leave the odd comment or two, that would be very much appreciated. Now... Next week, we are going to be getting something which I think for us is something of a treat, but also something which is rather divisive play. We are going to be covering Live 34, which means we're going to be doing with Seventh Doctor, Ace and Hex again, and a play, I think it's fair to say, that takes an extremely unusual narrative stance. We hope you're going to join us for that discussion, but until then, keep talking. <laughs>